that's where we are going to be uh, considering as we study our, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, working our way through it. We are a, a church that uh, teaches through a book of the Bible at a time. We do hold very, very firmly to expository preaching. That is, we draw the meaning of the text out of the text. And uh, basically, the text is the message. And, and I always say that the, the text is really good. We don't need to make anything up. I don't need to put something into it because it's already really good. I'm just kind of sometimes wondering, am I adequate to bring forth the goodness that's already in there? That's, that's, the, that's the difficulty. Because the text is amazing. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 56. And let me just bring you up to date of where we have been, and then in a few moments we'll read our text and, and draw some, some meaning out of it. But, so, if you've been with us every Sunday, or most every Sunday, as we've been going through the book of Luke, one of the things that we, we noticed, especially in, oh, up until about a month ago, Luke is really focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And and. and and tells us a lot about who Jesus is. And we, we see that he is the one who has authority over all things. And that there is nothing in heaven or earth that are not under the control and, and uh, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And all of this was to bring the disciples and, by extension, you and I to a place where we can answer the most important question that we will ever be asked in all eternity, and that is, who do you say Jesus is? So Luke presented a very, very strong case of who Jesus was, brings his disciples and you and I to the place, so when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am, we can answer accurately and correctly along with Peter and the disciples, thou art the Christ of God. So that was the first part of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, building a case so that we can answer that question correctly. And I pray that everybody here has answered that question. Now, here's where we've been. Then after that, what, what Luke begins to do is begins to describe what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. Because Jesus, once Peter made that confession, thou art the Christ of God, he then dropped a little bit of a bombshell on them. Something kind of came out of left field because they assumed when you said he's the Christ of God, if you were to ask a a Jewish person in first century uh, Palestine, what is the Christ of God going to do? It's like, well, he's going to subdue the oppressors and establish his eternal kingdom and rule forever on David's throne and put down these foreign invaders. And we are going to be victorious over those who are oppressing us. And now Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And I fully believe he has that idea in mind. And then Jesus says, now let me tell you something. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the hands of men. And he is going to die. He points them straight to Calvary. And this had to just like, what is that all about? And then here's the crazy thing that Jesus does. He says, and then by the way, if you're a disciple, you're going to follow me. They thought they're going to military, political victory. And Jesus says, we're going to the cross. And if you want to follow me, you need to lay down your life. Take up your cross and follow after me. 
This had to catch them off guard. Perhaps it catches you off guard that a disciple is one who lays down his life, takes up the cross and follows after Jesus. But let me just um, put this little piece of blessing forward that Jesus then goes on and declares that following him, that is laying down our lives, taking up our cross and following after him is the most valuable thing you can do in all of your life. It's the most valuable thing in all the world. In fact, he goes on and says, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That following Christ, your soul is of such great importance that every possession you could ever own, everything that you could ever earn, every accolade you could ever uh, attain is not worth being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's where he's going. And then he actually demonstrates to a few people, to Peter, James, and John. And he shows, he unveils his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But then he also tells us a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So we've seen who Christ is and how glorious and how authoritative and how he rules over everything. And he's called us to follow the same path as he. However, his path is going through the cross. And then he also informs us that ministry of the disciple that is, the follower of Jesus Christ does not permanently reside on, in, on the Mount of Transfiguration. That is, our spiritual walk is not, permanent, is not a permanent ecstatic experience. It is, however, a life in the midst of people who are in need, who are broken, who are uh, hurting. Because he comes down from the mountain. And where does he go? He goes into the midst of a of human mess. This is where disciples dwell. And let me just go ahead and say this real quickly. If you are there, there is no such thing as um, those who are Christians and those who are disciples. All right. We we will say that if you are a follower of Christ, you are a disciple of Christ. There aren't too well. You know, the disciples are for the really really hardcore. You know, for my grandmother, she was hardcore, you know, went to church all the time. She's a disciple, but I'm just a regular Christian. There is no dichotomy in in Scripture for that. If you are a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of Christ, and you've been called to lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow after Him, and that is the greatest, most satisfying, most joyful thing that you can do. If you want to be happy in this life, we should lay down our lives, take up our cross, and follow after him and go into the midst and the mess of broken and fallen humanity. And, and I use the example. I know I'm preaching last week's message, but sorry. We'll get to this week's message eventually. So and now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> but I will say this, that, that there is great joy in, 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 in serving the Lord. And we use the example. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they responded positively? Is there a greater joy? Have you ever been on a greater ecstatic experience than that? When you laid aside your fear, say, you know what, I'm going to lay aside my time and my agenda and I'm going to share the gospel with this person and they say, yes, that's what I need. What a great joy that is. So, That's where we've been. Here's where we're going to go today by way of preview. And that is the disciples of Christ still have a lot to learn. In fact, they've really kind of, they are distorting what it means to be a disciple. And I, there are two ways we can learn things. We can learn things through positive examples. In other words, 
uh, you see somebody do something right and you say, follow that example. Or another way is you see somebody who does something wrong and you say, don't do that. Okay, so we're going to do the latter today. We're going to see the wrong way to do things. Not so that we emulate it, but so that we say, okay, that's whatever that is, don't do that. All right? And they have a lot to learn, and so hopefully their shortcomings will aid us in avoiding their mistake. And, and our main theme today is that pride distorts true discipleship. In order to be a disciple, pride may be uh, one of the most... Um, that which threatens our walk with the Lord more than anything. And instead, Jesus calls us to a place of humility. He calls us to a place of unity. He calls us to a place of compassion. And these are the characteristics that would mark out a disciple who is laying down his life, taking up his cross and following after Jesus. So with that as kind of our setup, let's go ahead and read our text. Chapter nine, Luke chapter nine, verses 46 through 56. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Our Father, I pray that you would enable us to hear, that you would enable me to speak. I pray, Father God, that your spirit would illuminate this text for us, that we might follow you and hear your in, and respond to your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, our text begins with an argument arose among them. So this is an argument among the disciples. Uh, So, the argument is about who's the greatest. And I can imagine each of the disciples saying, well, you know what? Jesus loves me more than he loves you. And perhaps Nathaniel or Bartholomew is like, man, he loves us so great. Man, we're going to be so exalted when Jesus comes in his kingdom. Man, we're going to be, who's going to get the highest position? Who's going to be the the the, the top dog in the kingdom. I, I think Jesus is going to have me be that top dog. And of course, Peter comes along and says, yeah, I remember you guys just the other day couldn't even cast out a demon. <laughs> and, and you think you're going to be the top dog? 
We were there I mean, and we were up on the mountain with Jesus, me and, and James and John. But I'm Peter and I'm pretty sure that, you know, James and John will be below me. And of course, John will speak up and say, God had to shush you. Remember, you were talking out of turn and God had to say, shut up, Peter. Basically, that's a bit of a paraphrase. How in the world are you going to be the top dog? I'm pretty sure that, you know, you come up with that stupid idea of building three tents. Come on, what a dumb idea that was. And so here they are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to understand the setting in which this argument appears, because this argument is set in, in this place where Jesus has just talked about going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. And what are they talking about? Oh, I'm the greatest. Jesus has talked about giving his life for humanity, for the sins of the world. And they're wondering, let's see, I wonder if I can get a little bit better position over Bartholomew because he's not. Maybe I can be one. I may never be a Peter, but I can be better than Bartholomew. So while Jesus is speaking of his suffering, his death, they're arguing about their relative self-importance. And so it is clear that they do not understand the kingdom of God and they do not understand the plan that God has laid out for them. And so the desire for greatness created this conflict amongst Christ's followers. And so we all ought to be take a lesson from that, that pride has created conflict in the midst of the followers of Christ over who has the highest social standing amongst the small group of people. Well, Jesus, I love what it says here. It says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. And we could spend a fair amount of time there, but I love the fact that Jesus gets right down to the heart of the issue. No pun intended. Um, But he gets right to the heart. In other words, he doesn't really deal with um, all of the arguments. Peter, how can you be the think you're going to be the best when, you know, you speak so uneloquently and out of turn and you interrupt God? You know, how, how can you be instead of going there, he goes straight to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to their hearts. And Jesus was a master of making sure that we strip away all of the peripheral stuff and get down to what are the core issues. You remember Matthew chapter 5. It's like if you're angry with your brother. And he, and he relates that to murder and he, and he talks about all of these things. But he's talking about all of these horrible things, things like who is the greatest, are all issues that begin in our hearts. They begin deep down. And Jesus is getting there. And Jesus, that's where Jesus wants to go in our lives. He doesn't want to just clean us up and make us a little bit better and make us more pleasant people. He wants to get down to the heart. James, of course, picks this up in James chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't you know that it comes out of your heart? You have passions and they're they're not being satisfied. So you murder and you have desires and they're not and you covet, but you don't have. And so therefore you you steal. It's 
all coming out of the heart. And so Jesus is going to get here. And we should note then that when Christ saves us, when we are regenerated, he just doesn't clean up our outward act, but rather he changes our heart. And regeneration is just that. Regeneration, being born again, coming into the kingdom of God, um, becoming a Christian is a a heart issue. It is a change of the heart. It is not simply a moral code. In other words, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't run with those who do. That's easy to fix. All right? Legalism is actually very easy. When Jesus said, don't commit adultery, all of the Pharisees were standing around going right on. Got it. Don't commit murder. They're all like, got it, man. I never killed anybody. Anybody can, lots of people can do that. I shouldn't say anybody. Lots of people can uphold a legalistic code, but Jesus then gets to the heart of the issue and shows how we are in sore need of an inner transformation. And so, Jesus now begins to demonstrate what is the heart of a disciple. And I suppose he could have given them a lesson, but he gives them an object lesson. And, and he wants to talk about the heart that honors Christ. And so he brings in a child. And we should note that children in the first century, um, in first century Palestine, had really zero rights. Um, they were, uh, had little, no, no status whatsoever. In fact, under, tw- under the age of 12, a child could not even be taught the Torah. So a child, uh, especially under the age of 12, was really insignificant. And I, I saw this... Um, this quote that I thought was interesting. I think I put it up on this. There it is. Um, this was a, uh, a lesson from, from a Jewish rabbi. It says, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of the common people assemble destroy a man. So even chattering with children was seen as, you know, something, don't do this. And so what does Jesus do? He brings a child in. Zero status, can't be taught the word of God, and actually is seen as destructive. And he brings in this child. Jesus is now reversing cultural expectations. And this is important for us to realize because society does not provide an accurate gauge for um, status. Culture does not provide an accurate measure for greatness. Because for us, greatness is in education or it's in achievement or it's in financial um, well-being or it's in being famous. Even if you're not famous for anything, just being famous. But Jesus begins to turn this idea of status upside down and says, in the kingdom, there's a different measure of status than there is in this world. He begins to talk about greatness, I believe, in light of the cross. He wants the disciples to change how they view others. In other words, he wants them to act in a way towards others that ignores status, but views other people as, bearers of the, as image bearers creations of God. He says, so whoever receives this child in my name, 
Another rabbinic saying says this, a man's representative is like the man himself. So when Jesus says, whoever receives a a child in my name, not only receives me, but receives the one who sent me. Jesus is coming and representing the father. And to, to receive the representative is as to receive the one who sent him. And so when we receive a child in the name of Christ, we are receiving Christ. And when we receive Christ, we are receiving the father. You want to draw near to God. Welcome the outcast, the nobody. To such a one is to receive the outcast, to receive the one who is seen socially um, as a nobody, is to welcome Jesus Christ. This idea of receive has the idea of hospitality. It's welcoming. To, to welcome somebody who is outside of our social circle, who is, who is not nearly as great as us. But to bring them in, to welcome them, is to welcome Christ. Do we want Christ in our midst? We welcome the outcasts. And of course, we see this in, in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Remember when Paul's on the way to Damascus and Jesus knocks him on his backside and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Saul persecuting? The church, people. To persecute my people is to persecute me. To by the reverse then, as Jesus is teaching us here, to welcome my people is to welcome me. And then you remember in Matthew 25 where Jesus talks about this parable of the sheep and the goats. And what does he say? He says, if you've done it even to the least of these, who have you done it to? Done it to me. So when you exclude and and diminish somebody else, you exclude me. But when you welcome me, you, you, or when you welcome them, you not only welcome me, but you welcome my heavenly Father. Oh, what, what a reversal. So while you're arguing over who's great, I'm telling you how to be a servant. Do you want to be great? You will be great by serving others. And so I believe then that this Reception carries a moral demand to take care of others. So let me... And I guess then we, we could extend this out and say that if the least are great, then all are great. And therefore, love should be extended to all. So I'll just summarize this first point, and that is greatness is only correctly understood in light of the cross. True greatness will will come through serving. Greatness lies not in preferential treatment or having more authority. It involves serving others, especially outcasts, and especially those who can't repay you. So do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Stop arguing. Stop trying to climb the ladder, but rather lower yourself and serve somebody and welcome them. And after all, isn't that what Jesus did? Philippians chapter 2, right? Who exists, Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider it um, a robbery to, to hold on to God, but humbled himself and became like you and me as a man and suffered on the cross. This is exactly what Jesus did. He didn't say, oh, well, I'm pretty great up here in second person of the Trinity, hanging out with Father, Holy Spirit. No, I will humble myself and I will 
put on flesh, dwell amongst them, and die for their sins. There's our model. So, first thing, they were distorted disciples because they distorted what it meant to be great. They distorted the very image of God. But the next thing we see is that distorted disciples exclude. So, first of all, kind of ironic that they just were taught not to exclude anybody and then John comes along and starts to exclude somebody. Because this, I love this, and John answered. So, what an answer is that? Jesus says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw somebody doing something we don't like. We don't want to have anything to do with him. Get, get rid of that guy. What an answer. So we can see that there's a ways to go for these disciples and probably a ways to go for you and I. So basically, John says, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name and he's not part of our group. And so therefore, we, we told him to stop. And Jesus said, don't forbid him. I, I'm going to, I don't know how to break this to you. I guess I'll just take the Band-Aid approach and just do it fast and quick. And You're not the only one serving Christ. Let me go even further. This church is not the only church that um, is serving the Lord. Pride compels us to believe that we're the only ones truly serving God. Oh, they may be serving God, but we're the only ones who really, really serve God. And when I was a new believer, I went to a particular church and we made fun of Southern Baptists. <clears throat> so it's kind of ironic, isn't it? You know. <laughs> so, but I don't want to swing the other way, right? And now all of a sudden say, yeah, you know what, they're Christians, but we're really Christians. We're really, really, really Christians. They're really Christians, but we're really, really Christians. Believe it or not, God has a big work that's going on and he doesn't do everything through you. But, like I said, sorry I have to be blunt with you, but God had to be blunt with me as well, so I'm just passing it on. Pride compels us to believe that we're the only ones truly serving God. I agree, there is one body and that one body has many parts. Christ is the head, but if all were an eye, where would the hearing be? So Jesus says, don't stop him. In other words, let's not hinder the work of God that God is doing through others. And uh, the one who is ministering at your side is to be encouraged. And there are many tasks that are necessary in the kingdom of God, not just yours. Sometimes it's kind of nice to go to these big... Uh, I love to go to our... So, so, so we have an association of churches and there's like 50 churches within our association and they're from the East Valley up to here. I love to go to, to our associational meeting and I figured I'd get an amen from over there. But I <laughs> So, um, <laughs> 75, thank you. I'm, I'm going off of old statistics. 
But, but one of the things I love to hear, and there's some business that has to go on and some of that stuff, but it's amazing when you hear these people from various ministries get up and they're telling what God is doing in places you never dreamed of or I never dreamed of. And God is doing amazing and exciting things in areas and regions and ministries that haven't even entered into my mind that need ministry. And I'm like, going, well, God is way bigger than whatever it is I'm doing. He's doing amazing things through all kinds of people, people who... We're laboring in the same field together. Don't stop them. Or maybe they're laboring in a different field. But God needs that field harvested as well. And so we, we get up and we say, oh, we need to do, you know, uh, we need to do this. And, you know, we tend to think that whatever God has gifted us and made us able to do, we tend to think that's the most important thing And if if everybody did that, then the kingdom of God would be complete. But God's got a pretty big kingdom, and he's doing all kinds of crazy things through all sorts of crazy people, and, and they're ministering and, and bringing about and glorifying God. So don't hinder them when they're doing something, even if it's not your thing. You know, sometimes we, you know, I tell people, well, we, we like to, to go overseas and do missions. It's like, well, there's plenty of ministry to your next-door neighbor. Or you say, well, you know what? I'm ministering in my local community. Don't you know there's great need overseas? It's like, uh, yeah, I, I understand all of those things. I'm thinking both and. You know, I don't think we need to do an either or on that one. But anyways, but God has called people to various places. And if everybody were an ear, where would the seeing be? In fact, if everybody was an eye in the body of Christ, it's a grotesque being. So God has created us and, and put us in various places. So that's kind of what's going on here. Now, let me just balance a few things out because it's easy to, to let that pendulum swing too far. And it's easy because in a, someday we're going to get to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus says this. He says just the opposite almost. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so somebody, and I've heard a lot of people say, see, Jesus contradicts himself. Jesus did not contradict himself. Okay, so first of all, let me just state this, that the 1123 passage is a personal test. In other words, there is no middle ground. If you are going to follow, you cannot be neutral in your personal walk with the Lord. You can't say, well, I'm neither a Christian nor not a Christian. I don't either follow Christ or do follow him. I'm just kind of neutral. There is no neutrality within the kingdom of God. You are in or you are out. That's what Jesus is saying. So I will call you. There is no neutral ground. You need to make a decision. And if you say, well, I'm just not going to make a decision, that would tell me that a person is not following Christ and is opposed to the things of Christ, even if you don't actively you know, picket churches or something like that. So there is a personal, this, there is no middle ground. One cannot be neutral about Jesus. But what he's talking about, he's talking about disciples in this passage, people who are not neutral, who have said, yes, I am following Jesus, and this is the way God has called me to follow him. I think also John was a little bit upset because this guy was casting out demons, and just recently they were unable to do that very thing. I think there's a little bit of jealousy going on, but that's another sermon. But one other area of balance, there are some who are outside of the realm of orthodoxy, and they need to be exposed, and they do need to be hindered. All right, and so I can't get away from saying just everybody who claims so. I, 
there are some some orthodox positions that that are true for that, that make Christianity Christianity. Not everything is Christianity. So we hold to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, scripture alone. And that when somebody says, well, Scripture uh, is good, but we also take the uh, teaching of the magisterium or some other um, outward source, we hold to the value of those outward traditional sources. We just don't hold them as Scripture, as authoritative Word of God, and they are not sufficient for life and practice. They may be helpful, but they do not rule us. Scripture alone. We hold to the Trinity. I believe that's a, a necessary component. And a lot of places would deny the Trinity, but the Trinity is about as clear as you can get in Scripture. And by the way, if you don't have a Trinity, you've got a problem because you're a polytheist at that point. <clears throat> so, there are some things that are outside of orthodoxy. There are certain fundamentals of the gospel that cannot be compromised, and we will expose those things. That's not what's going on. This is a person who's following Christ and ministering in the name of Christ and doing... Uh, he's just not one of the twelve. Remember, Jesus had a whole bunch of disciples all, all over the place. This just happened to be one who was doing the work of the Lord. So I'll, I'll leave that there. We could probably spend a lot of time. That's probably ten sermons um, there. And I don't have time for ten sermons right now. I barely have time for one. So the next area then is distorted disciples destroy. And this is interesting because they're, they're getting ready. They're going on the road. Um, and it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that this is going to be a real focus from here on out in the book of Luke. And that is Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. But I find it interesting, he says, when it's time to be taken up, when it's time for the ascension, drew near or approach. And this idea of approach means that it was part of a plan. Very interesting word, but it really has this idea that this was part of a plan. So Jesus... Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension were not some accidental, haphazard uh, event. The crucifixion was not a sorry mistake that Jesus got in over his head and got crucified, and the resurrection wasn't, well, at least it worked out good for him. These were ultimate plans of God. And so as the plan of God is nearing its fulfillment, they're going through Samaria. And Samaria, of course, you know, is a place of... Uh, uh, rejected or with a place where um, people were, were divided. Um, Samaritans were not loved by the, by the Jews. and So Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Um, and so they're getting ready to go through Samaria. And here... It looks like an advanced team got sent out to make preparations. So they're getting ready to go through Samaritan. So you've got to think, you've got Jesus, you've got 12 disciples, you've got some, some women following also, and perhaps some more. So you've got probably easily 20 people coming into this town of Samaria. So you would send out an advanced team saying, man, you know, it's like making a reservation. We've got 20 people coming. We need a place for them to stay. And this Samaritan town says, we want nothing to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's this advanced team um, goes to make preparations and they are rejected. And we should note this, that not everybody receives Jesus. Some people reject him. 
So now we see the response. How does a disciple respond to the person who rejects Christ? And, well, we see the, the disciples' response. Uh, James and John, say, uh, their response is kill them all. You know, was it kill them all, let God sort them out? Master, should we just call down fire from heaven? We can't cast out a demon, but I'm pretty sure we can get fire to come down from heaven. Kind of, they're kind of taking on the mantle of Elijah who did that in Second in Kings. So they distorted the scripture to, to fulfill and to satisfy their anger. And what's Jesus' response? He rebukes them. Because where is he going? Notice what it says. His, set, his face is set towards Jerusalem. He's got the cross in front of him, not the destruction of these people who have um, rejected or not shown hospitality towards them. He is looking not to call down fire from heaven and consume them. He is looking to die for them. That's where he's going. I'm going to die for them. James and John, you, you want to fry them, and I'm going to die for them. Looking ahead, though, look at Acts chapter 8, one of the, I think, a great parallel to this passage. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw great signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And then it talks about a man... Um, by the name of, uh, of Simon. I won't get into that. I just want to keep going. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and James and John. And it goes on. And it says, um, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Folks, James and John said, Fry them. Jesus says, I'm going to die for them, and then I'm going to send you back with the gospel, and they are going to be saved. Folks, when you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not fry us as we deserved, but instead he died for us and sent somebody along and shared the gospel so that we might be saved along with these Samaritans. This is what it means, I believe, or an aspect of being a disciple. And so the Jesus model requires that we lay down our lives for others. We'll let God determine their fate. We'll let those who reject Christ, we'll let God determine. But you never know. The person who rejects your testimony about Christ may receive somebody the next year. How many times did you reject the gospel before you accepted it? Praise God that he was merciful to you. And now we need to be merciful towards others. I'm going to close with this. First of all, the love of Christ is to be extended to all. We are to reach out for those who are hurting, who are broken, who are not like us, 
who may not be as smart as us, rich as us, great as us, good-looking as us, and all of those other things. We should be seeking out the outcasts and bringing them in. I don't know about you, but I've been an outcast myself. Especially outside the love of God, and yet He had mercy on you know, a punk kid like me. We should also recognize that disciples understand that we're really a small part of a great work. We need to continue about the things that God has called us to do. And we need to support one another in the great work that God has called us to do. And we'll work with others for the cause of Christ. There will sometimes be little disagreements amongst us and we'll have some variance of, of, of certain areas of, of, biblical, of biblical doctrine. But well, within the realm of orthodoxy, we'll encourage and strengthen and pray for one another. And finally, we need to remember this, that Jesus died for sinners and we will share the love of God and the salvation that he offers. And then we'll let God do the judging. We'll let God exercise his justice. God is perfectly just. He knows how to bring about his, his righteousness in a perfect way that you and I never will. What we can do is we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ and call others to join him. And they may reject us initially, but remember the example of the Samaritans. We didn't want anything to do with them in this example. And then later um, they went back and preached the gospel and the gospel came to Samaria. <clears throat> Let's spend a few moments and um, just reflect on the things that maybe God has spoken to us in in this message or maybe through one of the songs or, or what have you. But let's just spend a few moments of quiet reflection and then we will stand and sing our final song.